If you have uh, a Bible in front of you or you have access to God's Word on your phone, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is probably not scary to anyone except me and David Hillis, our music leader, but Easter is actually two weeks away at this point. So it's an early Easter year. We've got a lot of things coming up with spring break immediately followed by Easter. One of the things I didn't mention earlier during Miss Nancy's baptism is that an Easter service was one of the things that the Lord used in bringing her back to himself and and beginning to move her to a direction of really wanting to follow after the Lord. Easter services are a great opportunity to be able to invite someone. And let me just ask you to do that. Invite someone to be with you this year on Easter. We have two services, a 9 a.m. service and a 10.30 service. Here's two easy ways you can invite someone to Easter service this year. The first is, as you leave the building this morning, there are cards that we've made up that have information about the services. You grab as many cards as you would be able to pass out, but grab those cards as you leave. Let people know about that. We've mailed out cards to people who live in the area, so there's a good chance that your neighbor has probably already received a card if you live fairly close to, or actually they'll be receiving it later this week uh, if they live close to the church building. Here's another option. On our Facebook page, we've set up an event for the Easter service, and so if you want to share that, if that's an easy way to get the word out, you can get the word out that way. We have a family event on Saturday at 10 a.m., the day before Easter. We need a lot of candy. So all of that leftover Halloween candy that you still have around your house, this would be the time to put that to use, all right? Add years to your life and help tell a kid about Jesus and give away your Halloween candy so that we can use it for this event. But that, that family event, the Easter family event, is on Saturday. So make sure if you have not brought some candy and, and signed up to help with that, you can, you can do that. So I just wanted to let you know, mainly as therapy for me and David, as we realize that Easter is two, two weeks away, I want you to let you know to begin, begin planning, begin inviting someone to be with you uh, in worship on that day. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together to pray, to sing, to experience the celebration of baptism, and God, to study your word. The theme this morning, that the passage is weighty, it's difficult. God, it may bring up a lot of intense feelings and and even memories for people who are here this morning. 
God, I pray that the result of your spirit working through your word would not be condemnation or judgment, but the result would be life and peace. God, that you would bring healing and hope, and God, that you would guide us as we move ahead from this day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a good chance if you've lived any length of time that you've asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Some of you may have been asking that question this last week. What is God's will for my life? We ask, where should I go to college? Who should I date? Who should I marry? What career should I pursue? Uh, What other career should I pursue since that first one was a bad idea? Uh, When should I retire? Should I retire now? Should I keep working? All of these different questions, and those are just the easy ones. All of these questions we ask ourselves about what does the Lord want me to do? And when we talk about God's will for our lives, and we talk about God's will in Scripture, it's actually a pretty deep theological discussion. A lot of things revolve around understanding God's will. And when we talk about God's will, we're talking about what is God's desire? What does God want me to do that will be pleasing to Him? And I acknowledge that it's tough to know who do I date, who do I marry, what career do I pursue, where should my family live, what should we be doing? Those are tough questions, but I think I can answer it for you this morning, or at least put us on the right direction to answering it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. If you want to know God's will, here it is. Your sanctification. Sanctification is a $100 religious word that means holiness, which is a $10 religious word that means separated from sin, dedicated to God. Holiness is a life in which we have separated from sin and we have dedicated ourselves fully to God. That's the best kind of simple definition I know to give it. And when you say, what is God's will for my life? The answer is your holiness, becoming separated from sin and fully dedicated to God the way that he has created us to be. There are actually other places in scripture that are just this clear when you're asking about God's will. A little bit later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, I think we have these verses up on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? What career should I pursue? Well, pray, rejoice, give thanks. This is God's will for you. That's not clear enough. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 15 through 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk or careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And then it goes on in the next verses after that in uh, verse 16 or 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation or this is, this is a waste, but be filled with the Spirit. So what is God's will for my life? Is that that you would make the most of every opportunity, that you wouldn't waste your life getting drunk and losing control of yourself, but that you would be filled with God's Spirit. There it is. That is God's will for your life. You go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says very specifically here that the will of God is your sanctification or your holiness. The reason that we can say that this is God's will for our life is because it's based in God's character. 
God's will for our life, and I don't mean to make light of those questions about where you should work or who you should marry or those type of things, but the reason we can say that God's will is holiness is because it's based in his character. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, which is actually a quote from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, it says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The reason Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God's will for your life is that you would be holy is because this is exactly matching God's character. God is holy, separated from sin, dedicated to the things that bring him glory, and Paul says this is what God wants you to do. But here's something that we need to be very careful about. If you're here this morning, and maybe you don't consider yourself a particularly religious person, but you're trying to get your life right with the Lord, I need to be crystal clear at this point. You could hear the preacher say, God's will is that you would be holy, and you could go home thinking, I need to try harder to be a good person. And we need to make sure that we make a a clear distinction here. The holiness that the Lord calls us to is a holiness that he works in our lives by the power of his son Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Being holy doesn't mean you go home and on your own strength you say, I need to be a better person. Being holy means that we experience the work of God and the goodness of God and the power of God at work in our life. I want to show you a diagram, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yes. Ha ha, I thought my pointer, my laser pointer was up here. I found it. Okay, so up here in the top left, this circle in the top left says God's design. God's design. This is what God has created us for. But there's an arrow that goes out to the side, and this arrow says sin. When we sin, we move away from God's design for our lives. Sin always leads to brokenness. There's a verse in the Bible that says the wages of sin is death. Sin always takes us away from God and leads to brokenness. Out here to the side, there are these squiggly lines. These are all of our human attempts to escape brokenness. If you have a friend at school or a coworker or somebody in your family, and they are living in the brokenness of sin, even if they don't consider themselves religious, they're still trying to escape that brokenness. We escape brokenness through man-made religion. We escape brokenness through our own attempts to be good. We escape brokenness through destructive life behaviors where we go deeper into sin. But, thanks be to God, down here at the bottom is a circle that says gospel. The word gospel means good news. The good news is that we do not have to be left in our sin and left in our brokenness, God has made a way. When we repent and believe, we come back here, we experience the power of Christ, and then these words say recover and pursue, and we move back to God's design for our life. That's the story of what it looks like for God to work holiness in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, after I showed that diagram for the first time, one of our teenage girls, I don't remember who it was, one of our teenage girls came up to me and said, So when you get back here, is the circle finished? That's a really good question. Or does the circle continue to go? Here's the answer, yes and no. 
It's finished in the sense of when you experience the work of Christ in your life, when you experience the good news of Jesus, and you begin to move back toward the work of God by his power, you are saved. You are secure in Christ. But here's what I love about this diagram, is the Lord continues to do this work in our lives throughout our entire life. This work up here, God's design for our life is that we would live in truth, that we would tell the truth. When we sin, we move away from truth and we go to lies. When we live in lies, we try to escape the brokenness of lies by telling more lies, our life falls apart, we cover up those lies. But if we will repent and remember the power of the gospel, God leads us back to truth. Do you see how how that works? God designed us to live according to his way and according to his word. When we don't do that, it leads to brokenness. You say, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Here's what it has to do. God's design is that we would live in sexual purity, that he has created sex as a good gift that we would enjoy and that we would portray to the world in the context of marriage. That is God's design. When we sin, we move away from God's design. And sexual sin always leads to brokenness, just like every other type of sin. And when we get in the brokenness of sexual sin, we try on our power to escape it every way we know how. And every way that we try to escape sexual sin leads to more brokenness and takes us further from God. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is healing. And when we repent and we believe and we live in the power of the gospel, we recover and we pursue God's design for sex. We live in those relationships. We live single lives. We live married lives. We live widowed lives. We live lives that show the world the goodness of God's design. Do you see how that works? This circle is the circle of how God works holiness in our lives. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's see the way this works. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And then it says, that is, so he's going to explain what he means by sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. If you're reading now the King James Version, it's probably going to say fornication there instead of sexual immorality. There are two key words there. The first key word is abstain or keep yourselves away from The second is sexual immorality or or fornication. Sexual immorality there refers to any sexual behavior, any sexual approaches outside of the context of marriage and even within the context of marriage in a way that builds up and encourages and loves the other person. That's the picture. That is God's design. When you see the word abstain and you see the word sexual immorality there in that verse, there's really no fancy way to get away from it meaning exactly what it says. When it says abstain, it means abstain, flee from, have nothing to do with. When it says sexual immorality, it means any approach to sex outside the context of marriage. That's just what it means. I I wish I could give you a really convoluted Greek answer about how it doesn't mean that, except that that's what it means. Abstain means abstain. Sexual immorality means sexual immorality. Go to verse 4. Verse 4 says, and then it gives you more explanation about what does it look like to abstain. It says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel 
This is the New American Standard Version. Possess his own vessel. A lot of translations will say body right there. In sanctification and honor. On your phone, but especially if you're reading out of a study Bible or a Bible that will have extra references on the side or on the bottom, next to the word possess and next to the word vessel, you probably have a little note that points you to another possible translation at the bottom or on your phone. It might hyperlink to another place. That word possess can either mean possess or it can mean control or it can also mean acquire like you, you purchase something or you get something. The word for vessel can mean a vessel like a jar uh, or something you would carry uh, a, a water around in. It can also, though, refer to your body. It can also refer to a wife. Now, granted, that tells us something about ancient culture and how women were, were perceived, not how the Bible portrays women, but, but Paul's using a word that in this ancient culture sometimes could be used for a wife. So if you have a little study note, it might say, instead of possess the vessel, it might say that each of you know how to acquire his own wife or acquire a wife in sanctification and honor. It could mean acquire a wife, but more than likely it has to do with self-control of the body. The reason that it probably has to do with is there's an amazing verse in 2 Timothy that connects back to this idea. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. This is the reference point for being able to make sense of that verse. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel. Notice the connection there. He will be a vessel for honor. Same word in 1 Thessalonians 4. Sanctified. Same word as 1 Thessalonians 4. Useful to the master. Prepared for every good work. 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about a life of self-control, a life where you are pursuing holiness and purity so that you will be able to be used to do the things that God has called you to do. It gives that word honor there. If you ask me, Owen, what kind of man would you want your daughters to marry? One of the words, and it's an old school word, but one of the words I would get to pretty quickly is I would want them to marry a man of honor. Now there's a lot of things that honor can mean, but honor at its core means someone who takes responsibility, someone who exhibits self-control, and someone who cares about others before themselves. They'll lay down their life for someone else. This idea that you would control your body in such a way that you are exhibiting those qualities is a life of holiness. It's a life of purity. Now, let's say something else about this verse, and this is part of the reason that we had second through sixth graders have a chance to, to go. But this verse here, when it says that you know how to possess his own vessel, it's not crude thinking, but it is a connection here to the idea of masturbation or, or self-pleasure. This idea, is that what this verse is referring to? It's not directly referring to that, but indirectly it absolutely is referring to that. That we would exhibit self-control, that we would exhibit responsibility, that we would live in a a way that's honorable, that displays holiness and sexual purity to the world around us. 
The core of that is found in self-control. The core of that is found in a life that is lived in a way that honors God's design and honors what the Lord would have for us. And so I know that maybe, you know, we don't talk about that in church very much, but if we're going to talk about it from God's word, let's talk about it here. That this is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to a life of sexual purity. And this is one of those ways, this self-control, this responsibility, this caring for others above yourself, this is the idea that's reflected here. You go ahead in verse 5, after it says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, verse 5 says, the opposite of that would mean not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. What Paul's going to do at this point is he's going to say, this is what God is calling you to. This is God's will for your life. And that's not like the Gentiles. In other words, not like the culture around you. The people that Paul was writing to, the Thessalonians, they lived in a culture where they were surrounded by sexual immorality. Now, I'm not sure what that would be like, you know, to live in a culture where you were surrounded by sexual immorality, but if we could imagine such a culture, this is the culture they lived in. And sorry for my sarcastic way of saying we live in that same culture. We live in a culture where we're surrounded by sexual immorality. Just to give you one example of this, this comes from a couple of centuries before the time Paul is writing, but there's a quote from a man named Demosthenes. Demosthenes has a quote where he kind of describes the the, the thinking of the time. He says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. Wow. You know, that is a picture of what it looks like to live in a culture where sex within marriage is just one part. It's just so you can have legitimate children and have somebody to take care of the house. Then you pursue whatever else you want outside of that. Paul is writing to a group of people that are living in that type of world, surrounded by that idea. They're also living at a time, as we're going to find in the next couple of weeks, where they're expecting Jesus to come back any time. God saved their souls, and so there was some idea going on that you can do whatever you want to with your body because Jesus is going to come back any time and your soul is saved, so do what you want to with your body. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That is how those who do not know God live. You are being called to holiness, to living self-controlled lives that portray the goodness of Christ to the world around you. Here's the reality. One of the things we talk about at Emmaus is that we want to be a church that proclaims and displays Jesus. So we want to talk about Jesus, but we also want to show Jesus to the world around you. Our approach to sex and our approach to marriage will display to the world around us what we believe about Jesus Christ. If someone wants to know what do they really believe about the gospel, what do they really believe about holiness, our approach to sex and our approach to marriage will display that, for better or worse, to the world around us, and God is calling us to lives of holiness, not so that we would be better religious people. Hear me out on this. He calls us to life of holiness, not that we would be better religious people, but so that people around us would see more clearly the goodness of Jesus. That's why he calls us to holiness. That's why he calls us to abstain from sexual immorality, so that we could present clearly the hope of Christ to the world. How do you do that? How do you go about that? Verse 6 gives us the first indication. 
So how do we pursue holiness? The first is that we recognize the negative effects of sexual immorality. Verse 6, Paul says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Sexual immorality always hurts others and always hurts ourselves. The way that you pursue holiness is realizing that when we do not follow God's design, you could pick any subject, but the text this morning has to do with sexual immorality. When we do not pursue God's design for our lives, it always hurts others and it always hurts ourselves. It hurts others because one of the great lies that we believe is that when we look at pornography or when we're involved in an affair, that it only involves one or two people. It never only involves one or two people. Sexual immorality always impacts those around us, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, but it always hurts and it always leads to brokenness. This is the lie that God's enemy, Satan, wants us to believe. The lie is, do this because it will bring you pleasure and it won't hurt anybody else. The truth is, it brings only short-term pleasure and it always leads to brokenness and it always hurts others. In his book, Counterculture, David Platt talks about the association between pornography and the sex trafficking industry. I want to read you a quote, just a short quote from that. Here's what he says. And hear this out. He says, We may scoff at how pre-Civil War churchgoers justified slaves in their backyards, but aren't we dangerously like them when we participate in pornography and thus promote the sex slavery to which it is tied in our own homes? We live in a world, especially with people in my generation, where it's popular and even borderline cool to oppose sex trafficking, And let's be glad for that. Let's stand up and say we are absolutely 100% opposed to that. But if we're not careful, we'll say we're opposed to sex trafficking, and then we'll live lives dominated by pornography, the very thing that is feeding back into the sex trafficking business. And what this quote is saying is be very careful about looking down on a two or three or four generations ago and how they viewed slaves and then we turn around and we find ourselves complicit as well sexual immorality always hurts others and it always hurts ourselves look at look back at verse six he says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in other words you'll hurt your brother through doing this because the lord is the avenger in all these things All right, let's be really clear at this point. Some translations will say the Lord punishes. Here's a reality in Scripture where we are reminded that forgiveness, healing, salvation is always possible through Jesus Christ, and sin always carries consequences. If we took a moment right now, many of you could stand up and you could say, I have lived a life that was far from God. And God saved me, and he brought healing to my life, but let me tell you about the consequences that came from that sin. And you could tell about that. This phrase, avenger, 
or punishment does not automatically mean eternal punishment. In fact, the other time that it's used in Paul's letters, it's used in Romans 13 when it talks about the role of civil government to bring punishment or, or to bring judgment against a wrongdoer. When we sin, and especially when we re- sin sexually, there is always healing, there is always hope, and there will always be consequences. There are consequences. Sometimes they're short-term, sometimes they're long-term, but the Lord reminds us of the weight of this, of what he has called us to. So how do you ever escape this? If you are here this morning and you are dominated by the weight of sexual temptation or you find yourself living in the midst of sexual sin, what is the path forward? Here's the path forward. Self-control always means spirit control. And I'll explain to you in a second what I mean by that. Self-control always means spirit control. Look at verse 8 just for a second. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says that the one who rejects this teaching, so the one who says, I don't have to live a sexually pure life, I can do whatever I want. The one who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man, but the God who gives what? His, what kind of spirit? Holy Spirit, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you see the joy of this verse? If you are living in the midst of sexual temptation, in the midst of sexual sin, look at the joy and hope of verse 8. That God has given to us, through his Holy Spirit, the hope that we have to live this life of holiness. This is not self-control that you find on your own. This is self-control that comes through a miraculous, powerful work of God's Spirit. How does God's Spirit work? He works through the Word of God. When we were in Bay St. Louis in in Mississippi this past year, about the time I was getting ready to leave and, and we were getting ready to move up here to Oklahoma, I had a guy come up to me and he said, when you first come, came to Bay St. Louis, and hear me out on this story, it's not going to be a story about my preaching, it's going to be a story about something else. When you first came to Bay St. Louis, I was caught in pornography. It was infect- affecting my marriage, it was affecting those around me, and he said, I sat there week after week listening to the sermons, and he said, I don't know how it happened, I'm not sure if it was your preaching or not, But I was exposed to the word of God week after week, and God set me free. And he said, I have no idea when that happened or how that happened, but I know that the only way that it happened is because I was exposed to the word of God week after week, month after month, and God brought that healing. If you find yourself caught, the way to find the work of God in your life is to experience the power of the Spirit through the word of God. Here's what happens, okay? Make sure... Because God works through his word, and the spirit also works through the church, through the people of God as you're gathered together. But listen to me. When you start to feel the weight of sexual sin and the weight of sexual temptation, and you feel, for lack of a better word, dirty because of what's happening in your life, do you know what the first thing is that usually happens? We run away from the word of God and we run away from the people of God, from the church, because I feel, 
I feel like I'm just not worthy to read God's word. I, I just can't bring myself to read it. And, and how can I be around those people because they're just gonna judge me and look down on me and I can't be around them. And you know what happens? We run away from the two sources of God's spirit at work in our life, the word of God and the people of God. If you are struggling and you are in need of hope and you need God's spirit to work in your life to bring that holiness, remain in his word and remain connected with his people. And I pray that you will find healing. I pray that you will find people who will come around you and lead you in a way that is holy and right. Okay, a couple of applications, personal, just straightforward applications. When I get a magazine uh, in the mail, like Men's Health, and it's obvious that I don't read Men's Health very often, but uh, if you get Men's Health in the, in the mail, or you subscribe to like car magazines, auto magazines of some kind, and you know that magazine contains pictures that are sexually alluring. My wife gets the magazine first and tears out all the pages she doesn't want me to look at. That's my gift to her. I hand her the magazine, she goes through there and tears them out. The five pages that are left are great. <laughs> They're awesome. That, ex- that explains why I'm not more muscular, because there's only five pages left in the magazine. That's my gift to her. That's my way of saying, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm going to thumb through that magazine and see something I, I shouldn't see. She takes it, and she rips them with gusto. Like, it is, it's intense, the way she rips p- pages out of, out of magazines. If you own a smartphone, we recognize Sexually alluring material is one click away. Sometimes not even one click away. You just open it, and it's there. Make yourself accountable. There are great software programs out there. We use one called Covenant Eyes. My wife gets a, a, a report of every website I go to. Uh, there's ways that you can protect yourself and, and guard against those things. Do the little things well. Like, don't find yourself in a close quarters, a close relationship with someone of the, of the opposite sex. I meet, try to meet weekly with our staff members just to get to know them and build relationships, but I only meet with Courtney and Amy together. So I, I'll, I'll meet with Jaron and Jeff and you know, we'll meet one-on-one. I don't need to meet with Courtney and Amy one-on-one because that puts me in a position that I just don't need to be in. So we meet the three of us. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to find yourself developing an emotional bond or developing a connection with someone. Let's talk about something else. We think about sexual immorality, and generally we think about teenagers, 20-somethings, 30-somethings. The reports show and the statistics show that the rise in sexual immorality is happening most right now among older adults, especially things like cohabiting, especially things like pornography. Now, for younger people, we're like, oh, that hurts my stomach to think about that. But uh, um, the reality is, that is the place of great sexual temptation, that as people live longer and healthier, spouses pass away, marriages end in divorce, Christian men and women, older in life, find themselves living lives that are not sexually moral. And let me tell you, older adults, These folks down here at the front, my generation, we need to see lives of holiness. Show us what it looks like to live holy to the end of the race. 
kill the idea of dirty old men in church. Kill that idea. We do not need that. Ladies, what you read, what you watch, set an example for younger women that shows the way to purity, that shows the way to holiness. That's the example we need. That is what God is calling us. All right, let's wrap all the way back to the beginning. What does this have to do with finding God's will for your life? Here's what it has to do. Holiness is God's will for your life, but it's also the path to God's will for your life. So let me explain that. If someone comes up to you and they say, what is God's will for your life? You can always say holiness, and they say, but that doesn't help me know who to marry. That doesn't help me know what job to have. That doesn't help me know whether my family should move next month or not. But holiness is the path to making those other decisions. Here's an example. This past summer, when we were in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, and we were first contacted by Emmaus Baptist Church, and it started to look like maybe God was leading us to come here to this church. We had to ask the question, is it God's will that we leave Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, and move to Oklahoma City, to Emmaus? We were leaving friends, friends that we miss dearly to this day. And if I laid out a pro and con sheet about should I stay in Bay St. Louis or should I go to Emmaus, you know that time when you lay out the pros and cons and they all match up and you thought, man, that was not worth the time. Like I, I'm, I know less now of what I should really do. The Lord did something in my life that I will always be thankful for his grace. He said, Owen, if you want to know whether or not you should go to Emmaus, whether you should leave and move, the only way that you're going to know that is if you pursue holiness with all of your heart. He said, if you will focus on me and you will live a life dedicated to me, I will make that path clear to you. Because emotionally, I was torn. I was an emotional wreck. When you're trying to figure out what job to have or who to marry, or what, we're emotional wrecks. Don't trust your emotions at that time. Trust the Lord and live a life of holiness that leads that direction. And what we find is a hundred small acts of faithfulness will lead us to God's will. We think of what is God's will and we think of one-time decisions. Marriage, college, career, those type of kind of one-time decisions. The way you get to those decisions is you make a hundred other God-guided, spirit-empowered decisions and it will lead you to that decision. My generation, we want to change the world. We want to do big things. The only way you get to that point is you're faithful in small things. And the Lord says, if you will pursue holiness, I'll take care of those other things. I'll take care of where I'm leading you. Here's what I want to say at the end. Is these same principles apply to church life. People will come up to me a lot and they'll say, Owen, what's your vision for Emmaus Baptist Church? That's a good question. There's nothing wrong with that question. It's an extremely valid question. It's a way of saying, what do you think God's will is for our church? Where, where do you see God leading our church? My vision for Emmaus, what I think God's will for us is that we would be holy. We don't need, at this point, another man-made strategy about how we're going to be a better church. We need the power of the living God through his spirit to bring holiness into our lives. And then 
he will guide us where we need to go. There's a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, about how God's people were moving into the promised land, and they started experiencing defeat, and they found out that one of the reasons they were not moving forward is because there was sin in the camp. And it turns out that the sin was related to a man named Achan. And before God could move them ahead to do what they needed to do, they had to take care of the sin in the camp. Emmaus, as we move ahead as God's people, the way we take those next steps is we look in our own hearts and we look at our own lives and we say, God, by your spirit, lead us to holiness. Let us be a people who are separated from sin and dedicated to you and then by your goodness and your power and your faithfulness, lead us to what we need to do next. Let's get ready. Let's pray as we come to the response time for our service. I know that the things we've talked about have, have been weighty, and, and they bring up a lot of things. If you think for a moment that being a pastor excuses you from sexual temptation, I can just, I can set you free from that and let you know I'm living in the same world you're living in. We face that weight. We feel that desire to live holy lives for the Lord. I know we rarely, if, if ever, do this, and I need you to, to trust me and, and remain with your heads bowed and eyes closed. But if you are suffering right now, if you are struggling under the weight of sexual temptation, there's power in being able to confess that to say, God, I need your healing and your hope in my life. I'm not going to look up either right now, but if you're suffering under that weight and you need someone, you need to acknowledge that. No one's looking up, no one's looking around. Would you raise your hand right now? Raising your hand is not magical. Raising your hand is just admitting, Father, I want to live a holy life by the power of your spirit and I cannot do that on my own strength. You can put your hand down. If you need someone to pray for you, I know it's hard to walk forward during a service like this. We'll be available, but if you need someone to pray for you afterward, I want to be available. You can contact me. You probably have friends and family around that you can turn to. Don't run away from the source of hope and healing. God, I pray for those who are here. God, for those who are visiting, that you would work your grace and power in their lives. God, for those who are a part of Emmaus, that we would move forward not based on one person's strategy or ideas. God, we would move forward based on the power of holiness at work in our lives. That is your will for our church. May we live in the power of that. In Jesus' name, amen.